0: All right, you might like to make your way back to your seats if you haven't already. You look like you're ready. Anybody ready for a Resurrection Sunday sermon? Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, grab your Bibles. We're going to read Matthew's account, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 28. You can turn there. Hopefully, we'll have the Scriptures up on the screens as well. But before we do anything else... Let's pray together. Lord, we want to come to your scriptures this morning knowing that we're reading a passage that in some ways is so very familiar. And yet we recognize at the same time that this is a passage that is of such great importance. And so I pray that there might be a sense this morning of reading these scriptures and reflecting upon the reality of your resurrection with fresh eyes, with hearts that are open to see as if for the first time the wonder of our God, the power of your love and the reality of the resurrection. What that means for us today, some 2,000 plus years later. Father, speak to us, work in our lives and may the greatness and the glory of your name be exalted this day as we gather here. We pray that in your wonderful name. Amen. Matthew 28 is where we're turning. I was thinking this week, I was sitting down to watch a bit of TV in a moment of relaxing and doesn't happen all that often, and I was so rudely interrupted with a little ad, as I'm sure we're all seeing very regularly now as we head towards the election. There was a man, a certain politician, who likes the colour yellow, I'll say no more, I'll get myself into big trouble. And there he was making all sorts of claims, claims about the bad state of the nation and claims about how he was the one who was going to fix the woes that face us. And of course, we see not only ads on TVs, but banners and slogans and people's faces lining the street, all claiming various promises. And I don't aim this morning to speak to the validity of any of them. But I do want to speak about one claim which stands central, which stands and has stood for thousands of years as both the center of our faith, the hope and the assurance of the reality of who this God that we worship is and all that he has done. And it is a claim that's evidenced by a now empty tomb. That's what we celebrate. So let's read together this resurrection account that Matthew gives us in chapter 28. It says this, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first week, Mary and the other Mary, the two Marys, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. It's a common occurrence, isn't it, after that sort of a visitation? Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he And they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. We'll leave the passage there. The account of the very first resurrection Sunday morning. And as we illustrated with the kids, what do you think those early disciples, Mary and the other Mary, what are they thinking as they go towards the tomb? See, it seems like such a contrast, doesn't it? The tomb, of all places, that would be the place of great hope. ...and assurance and victory. Tombs that in the natural represent hopelessness. There's nothing more hopeless, there's nothing more final than a tomb or a grave. And yet forever the tomb is a sign, I believe, that there is no darkness... ...that he can't bring light into the midst of. There's no place of deep, dark despair... His gospel comes forth, the good news, the light and reality of who Christ is. It comes forth from the deepest, darkest places. That's where it's found. And in this account, we read that the angels invite, as we too are invited, to come and see the signs. Always seems fascinating to me. that as the disciples, first of all, the two Marys, and then later on we see Peter and John, presumably probably others as well, they came to the tomb. Many of them saw angels, all of them saw the stone rolled back, the garments laid, just as if the body, which of course it has, it was resurrected, came right through, laying just as they would have been as they covered the the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, that's why the tomb is of such great importance to us. Because Christianity is not about some relative, subjective, personal experience. The angel doesn't say to these two Marys, just, just feel it. Just think, think about what you feel. Faith, faith belongs just in that subjective reality of your own feelings. Instead, the angel invites them in and says, Come and see for yourself. Come and see the place where he lay. Come and see the grave clothes that covered his dead body. Come and experience. Come and touch it. The center of our faith is not only within the realm of subjectivity, but it is a public factual claim to truth, etched into space and time involving real flesh and blood. He has risen just as he told you. Come and see for yourself you see this is a claim surely that is worth examining above every other claim of a politician but sometimes i think it's it's a claim that we've heard so often that it loses its luster a little i walked into my gym this week just round the corner in fishwick and as i'm sure a lot of places and a lot of us would have seen it was all decorated for Easter. That seems to be more of the thing these days. We do a bit of a celebration, so there was Easter eggs and there was chocolates, and the few staff members behind the desk had little bunny ears on. And I walked in the door. I said, "Oh!" I walked in the door and I said, "Oh, I, you know, so you've decorated the place." And the staff member behind the desk, a young younger lady, she said, "Yep, you know it's Easter when there's eggs and bunnies all around." That was their statement, and I said to her could help myself. I said, well, it's a little more marketable than a dead man hanging on a cross, isn't it? <laughs> and walked on through. I don't know if she'll ever talk to me again as I enter in. But there is this capacity at times, isn't there, for us to gloss over the reality of this claim. A story we've heard so often, a claim that most of us could espouse, verbatim. But I want to remind us of this claim and a few different aspects of it that are so worthy of remembering. May we never lose the realness and the rawness and the reality of the power of the resurrection and what it proclaims. So if you've got your Bibles, if we could get this one scripture put up there, I want to remind us of the claim of the gospel of the cross and of the tomb that stands empty with a very well-known verse, John 3:16, which is coming up any moment because we're going to read it together when it's there. John 3:16 We don't need it on the screen. Who needs it on the screen? Who wants it on the screen? That's far more fun. You ready? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who has never heard that verse in their life? Not one of us here. We've all heard that particular passage and portion of Scripture. But let's just look at that in a little more detail this morning. First of all, The two initial verbs, for God so loved that he gave. He didn't just love. He so loved that he gave. And before we remind ourselves of anything else about this claim of the cross and the tomb and the resurrection and all that it means, let us remind ourselves of that reality. For God so loved that he gave. The uh, prominent theologian, a a gentleman whose works I love to read, N.T. Wright, he wrote this somewhat controversial book a few years ago called The Day the Revolution Began, looking at the nature of the crucifixion and the work of the cross. And he made this statement. He said, one of the greatest injustices we can do when proclaiming the message of the gospel and the cross is unwittingly turning the message for God so loved that he gave, into God so hated that he killed. Now, none of us would come forth with that particular message. But he puts it this way. He says, so often unwittingly we present this picture. There's this God of of hateful vengeance, this God of wrath unlimited. He's looking for someone to kill. And somehow Jesus steps in and says, well, just kill me. Now, there's some elements of that that are so powerful and necessary, talking about God's hatred of sin, talking about Romans which proclaims that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. But he said, let the message of the cross and of the work of Christ always resonate with for God so loved that he gave, rather than for God so hated that he killed. You see, the cross was purposed before the foundation of the world as an ultimate act of love, both in what it cost and what it accomplished. For God so loved you and he so loved me that he has made for us this provision. He gave. He gave. That's N.T. Wright. I was reading a a particular paper by... um, Another individual talking about the extravagance of God revealed in Christ through his time on the earth. And in this, I thought it was a wonderful picture, in this, the central theme that came through in this particular person's work, looking at the the life and the ministry of Christ, was the ever-present reality of a loving, giving God. Let me give you a few examples. First of all, in the parables. The parables, this author suggested, present God as an irrepressible giver. We see, for example, a farmer who scattered seeds so liberally that most of it didn't take root. We see a king who forgave an impossible debt, 10,000 talents, a vineyard owner who gave people more than their work was worth, a father who gave away half of his estate to a rebellious son, and then when he came back, he simply asked for forgiveness and he threw him a party. A king who gave wedding invitations to every undesirable in the county. Bring them all in, every byway and highway. Let them celebrate with me. What is this picture of God that Jesus is wanting to convey? Not only in his parables, but think about Jesus' miracles. How many weddings need 150 gallons of fine wine? Perhaps that point is debatable. We'll move on. How is it that a God who knows everything manages to so grossly over-cater every time he feeds people? Twelve baskets, ten baskets, there's always more. What sort of foresight does that show? If he could heal someone with just a word, why does he wait three days before raising him from the dead? Or who is this God who produces fish out of nowhere so much that it nearly sinks the boat? And then he does it all again. You see, in every miracle, in every parable, Jesus is proclaiming that there is a good God and a good God who loves giving. He's proclaiming the extravagance of a God who so loves that he gives. This is the message of the cross. He so loves that he gives, and then as the ultimate gift is given, he gives not just forgiveness, not just mercy, but for God so loved that he gave what he gave his son. He gave himself, as Romans 8:30 said, "We get all all the rest, but he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him?" graciously give us all things. He gave us a gift. Bankrupted heaven, as some would say, to give us everything, the gift of his son. For God so loved. What a wonderful message that is. But he continues. Sir, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever... I love that word, whoever. You know, that's underlined, that is highlighted, that is stands out to me in every way it can possibly stand out. I'm so thankful for the whoever's. But you know, there's a subplot in the resurrection week, and I'd only reflected upon this this last particular week. God chooses this particular portion in history to come to spend his time on earth to demonstrate who he was and then ultimately to die upon the cross. Now, you'd think that he would be doing that in a time where his message was to be well received, where he was to be given the respect that he was worthy of. You'd think that he would be calling to himself disciples and followers who could encourage him and support him, uplift him. And yet, as I look at this account of the people that were around Christ, nearly everyone disappointed him. During the Last Supper, Jesus tells his friends that one of them will betray him and that all of them will abandon him. And what does Peter do? He puts up his hand and says, well, they might do that, but not me. I will never leave you. How many of us have ever made a promise like that to God? I will never. And then within a matter of hours, all moments our words have become of no avail and so we read the account he's sitting around for dinner judas of course betrays him they go to pray the disciples are falling asleep not only on one occasion but on more than one occasion too weak to support jesus in his hour of need but then they move from sleeping to panic someone cuts off the ear of a servant, and they all fled, one of them naked, it says. I'm not sure why we got that detail. But one was in such a panicked state, he left without his clothes. And then, of course, the ultimate cringe-worthy detail as Peter swears black and blue that he doesn't even know who Jesus is, using his colourful Galilean language that would not be appropriate to translate in its full weight in this particular setting. See, it's heartbreaking as we watch these stories around Christ and yet it is, to me, so encouraging. Because Jesus is there accomplishing the greatest mission, and soon he will proclaim and release these people. They'll become the faithful martyrs, the apostles that we so admire. Who did he choose? Did he choose the perfect people? Did he say, let me get some people who are not going to let me down, some people who think before they speak? Some people who always know how to make right choices. They will be there for me. As I'm praying in the garden, they will never let me down. Instead, Jesus chooses flawed, insecure, imperfect people like you and me. I am so glad for the whosoever's, that He would choose us to proclaim and invite us into his eternal message of the gospel. That whosoever believe will not perish, but have life everlasting. You know, we live in a society, and this, this always really intrigues me. There's such a dichotomy around this little dirty word called sin, isn't it? Sin. What is sin? Sin. And on the one hand, as a society, we want to deny that sin exists. There is no sin. Sin doesn't really exist. You know, you just need to live however you like to live, as long as it's not hurting you and anyone else. That's, that's somehow not sin, and everything else is sin, whatever everything else is. Sin doesn't exist. God doesn't exist. Hell doesn't exist. There's no really any absolutes. There's no right and wrong. But the moment that somebody suggests that, in the eyes of a God that you don't believe in, that you are sinning and going to a place that you don't believe exists, well, we want to hold on to our right to fight that tooth nail. It's like we want to have our cake and eat it too. We don't want to believe it exists, but if someone says that we are something that we don't believe in, well, that's deeply, deeply offensive. And I believe it's because deep down in the human heart, there is this awareness of sin. There is this desperate need to be okay. We're we're trying to find a system where we sort of stack up. Look, this is okay for me. This is all right for me. We desperately want to be able to boast in what we do, and I feel okay about this, and I'm going to be all right, as long as it's not hurting anyone else. We want to feel okay because there is this brokenness, ultimately, that needs the forgiveness that's only found in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of his resurrection. Everybody in this room this morning needs forgiveness. Deep down inside, we long for it. And the only assurance, as Paul says, is because Christ rose from the dead, we know that we are no longer in our sins. Do you know this morning that assurance? That as you stand before God, the end of your life, whenever that might be, you stand completely forgiven, completely justified, not because of your works or anything that you've done, but because you've received his work upon the cross. Because he's raised from the dead, you have absolute assurance that you will stand before him forgiven. And then finally... He says, there is a promise not only that we will not perish, but of eternal life, everlasting life. Let me just bring this to a conclusion with a particular story. And as I said, my heart here is to, at this time, as we intentionally reflect upon the work of the cross, to remember the claim of an eternal God who so loved, That he gave. He gave his son that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, will know forgiveness, and will have everlasting life. Have you ever received a gift that you didn't deserve? Anyone received a gift they didn't deserve? Not very many of us. I've received a few in my time, but there's one in particular that stands out. I've shared this story once before, but. I had a very colourful driving history as I grew up. I got my licence, and there's something about a young, testosterone fueled male who just thinks he can take on the world. And three days after having my licence, I took on some dirt trails and flipped my car and rolled it over and totaled that first particular vehicle. Three days it took me. Within the first year of driving, I went through three cars, and somehow, Nobody thought to uh, prevent me from getting a new one. Conversation for another day. Somehow I got more cars and somehow I never learnt my lesson. But there was this one particular morning and, you know, every testosterone fueled young teenage male, as you hit a roundabout in Canberra, if there's no other cars around, you always have... Well, I, I, let me speak for myself. I always have that thought. The roundabout becomes a straight and through, Right? There's something that takes over, that rally driver, too many video games, and you just think, you know what, I'm just going to try and see how directly I can take on this roundabout. So there was a, an early morning example. I was driving, I remember exactly the roundabout I was going through, and that moment took over me. I said, here we go, this is the moment. And I scooted through, it was a particularly good line, I have to say. It was one of my finer examples of a straight and through the only problem was that as I exited the roundabout, I saw in the bushes on the other side of the roundabout the flashing siren, <laughs> the lights. I thought, oh dear, here we go. So, of course, the police officer pulled me over, and they always ask you, don't know, they? They say, do you know what you were doing? I was just driving, you know, minding my own business, something wrong, officer? And he proceeded to tell me exactly what it was that I was doing wrong. And you know, there's something when when our sins and our faults are pointed out to us at times, there's something that rises up in this humanity that wants to justify. So that was my first step. I justified. I said, Well, it wasn't really that bad. There's no one else on the round on on the roundabout. Surely you have something better to do. And then justification turns to excuse. And this, long story short, this police officer was not at all impressed. I forget exactly what I had, but it wasn't honouring and it wasn't respectful and I'm not proud of it. But he said, son, and you know you're in trouble when the police officer says that to you. He said, son, this is what I'm going to do. He said, technically, you actually went through the double lines of the roundabout both on the in and on the way out. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fine you the full penalty twice. So I took that fine kicking and screaming. I said, I'm going to report you. I'm going to complain to the authorities. I'm going to write formal letters. And long story short, I paid that fine every cent twice. But I had another moment some years later, and my driving had greatly improved, but the Lord was still working on my heart. I had one child at the time, and I remember again very clearly Going round and round about, it wasn't a straight and through, but I was off to have breakfast with my parents, with one child in the car, and at that particular moment, my father called me, I blame him still in part for the (laughs) events that proceed. So, very foolishly, I picked up the phone call, don't do that, I'm sorry, I repent, I apologise, and I did at the particular time have a cup of coffee in my hand as well, (laughs) so... I took on the roundabout with my knees, which was a bad habit, it was a bad habit, but I had got it down to a fine line, I was able to just shuffle the knees around, phone call, you know, it was a little wobbly, and of course, as I came out the roundabout, there again was the flashing lights. (laughs) Officer pulled me over, said, do you know what you were doing? And you know, again, that thing rose up in me, but I'd learnt a bit of a lesson. And he said, yes, I do. And the officer said, he said, look, to be honest, I don't know where to start. I don't know what you call that. <laughs> but you are breaking more rules than I could possibly find fines to give you. And I looked at him and I said, sir, you are 100% right. I am completely in the guilt. And all I can say is I'm very sorry. And I'll happily receive any punishment that you have. And he looks at me. There was no son. He said, "You know what? Don't worry about it. I'll take this one. You just go on your way. Don't let it happen again." And true story. And I tell you what, grace never felt so sweet <laughs> as that particular moment. Just as the uh, the band comes up, and we're going to finish with communion and just a song of worship. You know, there is this reality of a God who's so loves, that he wants to give a gift that's so much greater than excusing a parking ticket. And it's a gift that's not based upon your merit, not your righteousness, not anything that you could do at all to earn it, to strive for it, other than to simply receive his free gift. And we have two realities. Either we rise up in pride and think, who are you to call me a sinner? I don't need this. I'll walk my own path and figure this out in my own state. And you know what happens? We pay the penalty in full. Or the other response is simply that we humble ourselves. We acknowledge our need of the gift that he offers to us freely. And we taste the fullness of his mercy And his grace. The reality, the assurance that he was raised from the dead. Therefore, we can stand before him, knowing that our sins are washed away. As we sing this uh, last song of worship, as we conclude our Resurrection Sunday, as I hopefully just remind us and stir us about this incredible gift of grace. There's an opportunity this morning and you can get your kids from Sunday school if you'd like to do this as a family or if you're by yourself, you can come by yourself. And we're just going to kneel at the front and I'll ask the, uh, the board and the elders and the pastors, whoever's here, just to help distribute the elements. For the rest of us, can we stand? So we're going to join in a song of worship. are going to pray for us. And then just as this song is playing, As I said, there is an opportunity for each and every one of us to come this resurrection Sunday morning and receive afresh the gift of grace that the God of the heavens who so loved you and so loved me offers freely to each one of us. And just before we do that, can I ask you just to close your eyes for a moment because I want to pray for us. And I know most of us here and I know that hopefully the large majority we know Jesus and we have experienced his love and his mercy that doesn't hold us accountable for our sins and his grace that gives us what we could never earn and deserve so as we come forward this is this is our reminder. This is our the symbol of the reality of what we've encountered. What we've discovered. What we've experienced. But it might be that there's some of us here. might be one. There might be many. And you've never tasted of the grace and mercy of the saving King. The King who stepped down from glory to offer you free gift of salvation and all you need to do is receive, it doesn't matter where you are this morning, you walk with him, it doesn't matter what you've done there's a free gift of grace on offer as you turn from your sin turn from your struggle and striving to work things out in your own strength and effort and ability and instead put your trust in what he has already done is anyone like that just with every eye closed I want to give you an an opportunity to receive that free gift and just so you know what I'm going to do all all I'm going to do is ask you to come forward and I'll pray with you and then you can kneel with the rest of us and receive the bread that represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ his blood has been poured out for you I don't want to give that invitation intentionally we come to the table of the Lord. Is there anybody this morning, just give me a show of hands and you'd say, yes, I'd like you to pray with me. I'd like to receive the free gift of grace, of forgiveness, of mercy that's offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just raise your hand. I see that hand. Just give it a moment longer. Is there anybody else? There's no pressure here is just an open invitation. Ask one more time, is there anybody else this morning and you'd say, yes, I would like to receive that free gift, free gift of grace. Okay, that person who put up their hand, I'll get you in a moment. You can just stay there and you can come forward and I'll pray with you. The rest of us are going to join around the table of the Lord, breaking bread, remembering the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood that was shed for us. And as we do that, Van's going to lead us just in a song of worship. And so Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the reality of your resurrection. We thank you for the claim that stands central to our faith, our assurance, our hope. A joy secured as we gaze upon the empty tomb. And that's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're proclaiming as we come forward to receive the elements this morning. For you so loved us that you gave yourself, that we, the whosoever's, would believe in you who would put our trust in you that we will not perish but we will know the life now and unto everlasting that you promise amen so as you're ready you come forward we'll need the communion service to help too